Hello and welcome back to Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and today is a special episode. We have another scientist on the show today. His name is Cy Gart, and uh, before we get into the conversation, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Cy. Uh, Cy has a doctoral degree in biochemistry, and he has been a professor at New York University, Rutgers University, and the University of Pittsburgh School of Public Health. He is now retired, um, but that is uh, where he uh, served as a professor uh, during his uh, uh, years of uh, working as a professor. And uh, Cy's uh, website can be found at thebookofworks.com, and I'm just reading off his uh, About Me uh, page here. He's a fellow at the American Scientific Affiliation. He serves as uh, vice president uh, for the Washington, D.C. chapter. He's a member of the board of advisors at the John Templeton Foundation, and he's consulted and blogged for the BioLogos Foundation. And so that'll tell you a little bit, bit about Cy before we get to the conversation. Also, I wanted to let you know that you can sign up at our Patreon uh, page at patreon.com forward slash believe, or follow the link in the description below to get um, access to the five more minutes with Cy Gart, the bonus segment there to watch the five more minutes section, and uh, become a supporter of the show. Uh, we sure appreciate it. Thanks for watching, guys, and enjoy the episode. Well, hello and welcome to Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. Uh, my name is Hayden Clark, your host. Uh, glad to, to have you joining us today. And uh, today I'm going to be interviewing Cy Gart, a former atheist and uh, a biologist. So I'm excited to have another scientist on the show today. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Cy Gart. Cy, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Glad to have you. Thank you uh, for doing this. I appreciate it. Um, if you don't mind uh, introducing yourself to the audience, for those uh, who may not know you, just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what it is you do. Okay. Um, I'm a retired scientist. I was an academic professor at three universities for about 35 years. I then went to the NIH, where I worked in the Grants Review Department. Uh, I was deputy uh, division director in that at, at that agency, and I retired about three years ago. Um, but I'm not inactive. I am the editor of a magazine, online magazine called God and Nature, which is put out by the American Scientific Affiliation, which is the largest American organization of scientists who are Christians. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I do, I've also recently written a book and it's going to be published which I can talk about a little bit more later but I work on that and I'm also very involved in my church uh, doing a lot of activities so I'm pretty busy in retirement especially in the any areas related to science and faith I have an active Twitter account I'm on Facebook etc uh, my story, just very briefly, is that I was raised in an extremely uh, militant atheist family. My parents were actually uh, members of the American Communist Party back in the 30s, and uh, I was brought up uh, as a, uh, well, I guess what today is called a strong atheist position. In other words, I was absolutely positive that there was no God. God could not exist very anti-theistic. I was taught that religion is not only wrong, but actually evil, <laughs> yeah. one of the worst evils in the wor in world history. Some of this 
many of your audience have probably heard from modern atheists, but at the time that I was growing up, it was kind of rare. Mm -hmm. uh, I went into science. My father had been, had been a chemist, and I studied biochemistry, got a PhD, uh, began working in research, uh, and I've always been very interested in science in general from just even a philosophical standpoint. Mm -hmm. I had and continue to have a scientific worldview. I believe that the natural world is easily, is most easily and most appropriately understood by scientific research. Mm -hmm. um, but there were aspects of what I was learning about science, physics first and then later biology, that made me question my original atheist faith. And I, I call it a faith on purpose because it was something that, at least my version of it, was something that you had to believe in. Uh, it had uh, dogmas, it had schisms, it had yeah. everything that other religions have. But I began doubting the whole premise of it. Uh, the idea that materialism can answer everything stopped making sense to me. Mm -hmm. Now, that didn't bring me to Christianity. It didn't even bring me to believe in God, but it did well, it did lead me to question my initial uh, belief that the world and everything in the world could be explained and understood and rationalized simply on materialistic, uh, naturalistic causes. Mm -hmm. I can go into more of the details of how that happened. Yeah, sure. But... Um, so that 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 period lasted decades. When I was, I wouldn't even. I guess I call me an agnostic, where I just I didn't think about religion. I was very busy with my career. I was trying to learn, you know, move up the ladder uh, as a, a, in academia, and uh, I didn't really think much about God at all. Uh, but at a certain point, I started to wonder about if I had given up which I knew I had, my materialistic worldview, what worldview could I substitute it for? And I started looking into all kinds of things. Um, spirituality in general, uh, some of the things that you will see in New Age religion type stuff. I mean, I never went into the kooky things, but, you know, like pyramids <laughs> and yeah. all that nonsense. But I, I was interested in, in all kinds of stuff. I mean, I started reading the Kabbalah, uh, just for the mystical viewpoint. I started looking into Zen Buddhism. Uh, I was kind of a typical person of that period, yeah. uh, looking for some meaning, some spiritual meaning uh, outside of the sci my scientific career. Um, the way I became a Christian eventually, and it took quite a while, and it didn't, it was about maybe 15, 20 years ago. Uh, I, I met people who were Christians, and I went to a, a Catholic church, actually. First time I'd ever been to a church. I was in my 40s. And uh, I was terrified and quite, um, you know, on guard. I expected the priest to start pointing directly at me and, <laughs> Sinner! Yeah. What are you doing here? Uh, and I was amazed at what I actually found, which was sermons about love mm -hmm. and 
no judgment. I mean, I was lucky. I mean, I, I've heard other people, right. especially people who were Christian and then left, talk about being abused from the pulpit. I have to say that I've been to many churches since then, Catholic, Baptist, non-denominational, Methodist. I am a Methodist now. Okay. I have never heard that. So I've been very fortunate, I suppose. I have never experienced the kind of negative feelings that so many ex-Christians report as they become atheists. Um, so I guess I've been lucky. But my experience at the church led me to question not only, not just the general idea of materialism being everything, but my whole concept about religion, that religion, especially Christianity, was the evil of history. Yeah. <clears throat> and I started reading, and uh, one of the things I started reading was the Gospels mm -hmm. and other parts of the Bible. And my reaction to that was often the same thing as it was when I went to church. I, my reaction was, well, wait a minute, this isn't so bad. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> this doesn't sound wrong. This doesn't sound fake. This sounds really real. Yeah. I mean... Why would, if, if the Bible were all made up, why would the writers of the Bible write things about themselves and their ancestors that were not very nice? Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> why, 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 uh, why is King David portrayed as the human being he was, probably, not as some perfect hero, as you right. usually see in fiction? But what really impressed me were the Gospels. I, when I read the Gospels and then the Book of Acts, it was incredibly convincing to me. And I have since, in many debates that I've had with atheists, heard all kinds of stories about why the Gospels are not real and made up, and and they just don't ring. They didn't ring true to me then, and they don't certainly don't ring true to me now. Th those arguments are desperate arguments. Instead, what we have is a group of writings that describe something that, that to me, seemed like it really took place. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember seeing recently the movie uh, by, uh, by Lee Strobel. And, oh, and, it's a good and, movie. Yeah. yeah, Case for Christ. And, you know, I kind of went through that. You know, I did, I quote, did my research. You mm -hmm. know, I, and, and starting with the Gospels and then books about them and then arguments against them, I wasn't convinced that, that the Gospels were wrong. In fact, I started thinking maybe this is all true. Although I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And the reason I couldn't believe it was because I was still a scientist and the resurrection is magical and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so it, I wasn't there yet, but I was very interested in Christianity. And the reason I was so interested was the story is so beautiful. Yeah. Let's say it is fiction. Still, it's a beautiful fiction, is what I thought. Right. I mean, here you have a man who is a simple carpenter who you know, had a ministry for about three years in which he he gave a message to the people that was incredibly revolutionary. I began wondering why the communists were not, were anti-Christian. I mean, <laughs> more revolutionary than Jesus Christ. Yeah. You know, love your neighbor and, and, you know, give everything you have to the poor. I mean, who told me, nobody ever told me about that part. Right. And I, I thought it was a very beautiful story. And, of course, the resurrection itself was incredibly powerful and moving. And the book of Acts is written like history. I mean, 
you just read it, you know it was not made up. Anyway, still, it was extremely hard for me to give myself to Christ right. because it just felt, you know, it went against my worldview. What changed all that was, and this I think is probably happens with many people, I've heard it said by others, I had, a I had several dreams. Interestingly enough, the first of these dreams happened when I was quite young and still an atheist. And it was a dream which I can't describe very well, but it was a dream of tremendous joy. Uh, and what I now know, it, it was a dream of the next world. I had no idea that that was what it was when I had it. I just felt, I woke up with this feeling of joy that I couldn't explain, mm -hmm. and I was able to call on whenever I needed it. I would remember the dream, and I would feel joyful. I had no idea what it was about. But later on, when I was thinking about Christianity, I had two dreams uh, that were clearly about Jesus, where Jesus came and taught me things. Uh, and that made a big impression on me, and I began wondering if perhaps there was some way that I could believe in Christ and still hold on to my scientific worldview, but I didn't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. And But I was getting more and more interested, and finally, one day, I was driving a long distance, about a six-hour drive, and I was in a, a region of the country quite rural, and I turned on the radio, and I got one of these uh, preachers, you know, the radio, one of the radio preachers. Yeah. It was a Christian station. And I'd always turn those off whenever I heard them. <laughs> yeah, of course. But this time I decided, well, let me hear what he's saying. And I really wasn't listening to his words very much, but I was very struck by his delivery, mm -hmm. by his, the cadences of his speech. And he was a real, he was a good preacher, and you know, good preachers can really preach. Yeah. And he, and he, and I was very impressed with that. And after a few minutes, though, I turned it off because I really wasn't listening. But I started thinking to myself, I like to talk. I wonder if I could preach a sermon. Yeah. I've never thought of this before. And while I was driving, I began preaching to myself a sermon. And the words that came into my mind, and I don't remember if I said them out loud or not, I don't know, but the words that came into my mind were nothing that I had ever thought about before. Right. And I preached the entire sermon. It was not very long. I've written it down. <laughs> it's about a page or two. Yeah. And it was all about love and that Jesus Christ loves me, even me, sinner that I have been for over 40 years. And when I was done preaching that to myself, I had to pull the car over, and I was in tears, mm -hmm. and I knew that I was a Christian. Wow. That is that is uh, some powerful stuff. That's uh, Thank you for sharing that. Um, so you would say, actually, that there wasn't really, um, or I don't know, I guess I'm asking, there wasn't really any one um, kind of apologetic argument 
or or some or evidence that kind of pushed you into faith. It was more about your experience with the gospels, yeah. and then you're yes, also experience with the gospels, and then my my personal experience with mm-hmm. these dreams, and and in particular, what I believe strongly was a visit from the Holy Spirit. Right. Yeah. For sure. Uh, those words are not my words. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. The, yeah. Um, would you say then, or again, I'm just asking for uh, your view on this. Would you say it takes something like that then that that's more likely to uh, convince an atheist or or convince uh, a non-Christian, or do these apologetic arguments that we make for the resurrection for God and these uh, or for the miraculous or uh, the supernatural, or or can those also uh, lead to a conversion or anything? I don't know. I, I think that they help. Mm-hmm. I think apologetics can be helpful. Uh, I don't know enough about how other people get converted. Right. I have read that many people have had experiences somewhat similar to mine, mm-hmm. but many of those people had a, a background in faith, either as children, and then they drifted yeah. away and came back. Yeah, I mean, that would kind of be my story, which was, uh, I grew up in a Christian home, and uh, and right. if you've listened to the podcast, I'm sorry that you've heard this version of the story a thousand times, but anyway, I grew up in a Christian home, and uh, um, just uh, was baptized at a, a young age, and then uh, kind of drifted away through high school and into college, and then at college, uh, I didn't have as uh, deeply... Uh, supernatural kind of experience that you were describing there but i did have an experience one night actually while i was driving as well i just Mm. i just suddenly came under the conviction of my sin is what what it was i didn't uh uh, hear or see that i didn't preach a sermon uh there was (laughs) nothing there was nothing on the radio as far as i could remember i think i was on my way to a party and then i just kind of turned around and went home uh metaphorically and literally and uh that was it it was never the same after that and then apologetics didn't really come into it. I didn't even know what apologetics was at that point. Never heard any arguments for the resurrection or for God. It wasn't until I was in seminary um, I started having some deep doubts, and so I got into the apologetic stuff there. Mm-hmm. So again, from from what I can tell, there's a few people kind of like Lee Strobel or a J. Warner Wallace who are um, kind of come into the faith by going through these arguments one after the other. Yeah. Um, but for most people that I've uh, talked to, including myself, it was some kind of experience, and then the arguments yeah. came later. Is that kind yeah, of what you were saying? That's my impression as well. What One thing that I think, though, that everyone has in common is that whether you come to it through apologetics or you come to it through an experience, once you get there, mm-hmm. at least that was true for me and from other people I've spoken to, you don't go, I mean, it, it's so powerful. Oh, mm-hmm. I, I talk about it as, as the, the, the metaphor I use is, it's like it's Christmas and there's a present under the tree, but you don't want to open it because you're afraid it might not be it might just be a sweater. It may not yeah. be anything very interesting. <laughs> it's there. It's a gift. Faith is to me is a gift, and it's all wrapped and it's handed to you. It's always being offered to you. I I realized once I became a Christian that God had been calling me my whole life, 
and I could remember every single incident at which I now knew that it was God's call to mm, me. Yeah. But I I was deaf. I, 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 and then when it was almost inside, I could see the gift. I could see that it was beautiful, but I didn't believe it was free. I didn't believe it was a gift. I didn't believe it was special. I was worried. I was nervous. Yeah. And finally, I unwrapped the gift, and there it was, and it was so precious that I would never give it away again. Right. I would never. That's a good. Uh, that's a good uh, way of thinking about it. There, a good analogy. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't think it matters how you get there, but once you're there, you're there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, kind of do a, a bit of a ninety degree turn here, but uh, I do want to ask you in in the area of apologetics. This question comes up a lot, and I don't always get to talk to a biologist, so I wanted to ask this question for sure. As a biologist, what are your views on uh, evolution? Um, evolution seems to be a pretty popular topic in uh, apologetic circles, mm-hmm. and uh, so I wanted to ask you about that kind of um, how how should Christ- how should Christians think about evolution? I guess. Well, I, that's a great question. Let me just give you a little bit of history again first. As a biologist, of course, I all biologists, with a few very few exceptions, accept evolution okay. as the basis of biology. So, of course, I did as well. Uh, and I was worried when I became a Christian that this would be going to be a big conflict. Mm-hmm. I didn't know any other scientists who were Christians. I didn't know a single one. I didn't even know if there were any. Mm-hmm. In the academic worlds in which I traveled, there were some Muslim and Jewish scientists, but I didn't know any Christian scientists. Yeah. It turned out, of course, I was completely wrong. I just you know, they just didn't tell me they were Christian. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and by the grace of God, uh, Francis Collins, uh, who's now the head of NIH, wrote a book called The Language of God, and I read it. And that was a wonderful experience for me because I saw that Collins, who was one of the greatest scientists of our time and a biologist, uh, had no problem being an evangelical Christian and still holding to evolution. So, and then I discovered an organization called BioLogos, which he founded and which is now still running very strong. I found the ASA with 3,000 members, maybe 4,000 members who are all Christians, science of various types. And I have many, many Christian friends, both in person and online, who are scientists. Mm -hmm. So, uh, now, back to your, so that's the history, and that was what ena- enabled me to come out as a Christian, because I knew I was not the only scientist who was a Christian in the right. world. <laughs> yeah, that kind of helps. But back to your question about evolution, how Christians should think about it, I, I think they should think about it the way I do. And that is, evolution is valid scientifically, and more than that, to me, evolution is one of those many scientific pointers to the existence of God. Hmm. Because, uh, now let's remember one very important thing. Evolution says nothing about the origin of life. Right. That's not part of Darwin's theory. That the origin of life was a completely different scientific issue. When it comes to the origin of life, I, am a, I believe in intelligent design. When it comes to everything after uh, what we call the last 
universal common ancestor, Luca. That's some cell that, you know, was in existence probably around 500 million years ago or so, the first cell that gave rise to everything else. Mm-hmm. From there forward, evolution is a miraculous process. I believe it is, in fact, divine in origin. And I have some actual evidence and data for that, but I can't get into it now. Okay. But um, when people say that evolution goes against scripture, you know, I'm not enough of a theologian to, to be able to counter that, but I do, know the, I do know some very famous and well-respected theologians who do counter that, uh, who argue that Genesis, uh, the, I guess the most famous is John Walton, whose books on the lost world of Genesis, the lost world of Noah's flood, mm-hmm. several books that he's written on the lost world. And he's an Old Testament scholar, and his interpretation of the meaning of Genesis 1 is not the same as, for example, that of most young earth creationists. And the more I learn about this, the more I feel convinced. And what I learned not long ago is that the current view of young earth creationism, that, you know, the earth is 6,000 years old, and that it was and that Genesis is, you know, literally the truth of what happened uh, in, in a certain literal way, that this is a fairly recent idea in Christianity, and that it actually began, uh, and you probably know a lot more about this than I do. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> it, it, that it actually began with the publication of some books and papers in the 19th century by mm-hmm people associated with Seventh-day Adventists, right. and then taken over by, uh, uh, I guess it was George McCready Price back then, and then the Genesis Flood book, which came out in the early 60s, which kind of put young earth creationism back on the map. Mm-hmm. There had been other, you know, there had been uh, parts of that philosophy, that theology that had been around earlier, but it came, it became coherent and took on some scientific um, uh, mantle around then in the 60s. So you have people like, you know, Billy Graham and you go all the way back to Augustine and other church fathers who really thought that, you know, thinking that the, the Genesis 1 is exactly what happened the way it happened and then with extrapolations that are used about the fall. I, don't, I can't get into theology, but hmm. um, that this is sort of a, this is a, an interpretation right. of Genesis. And uh, one can interpret Genesis in many ways, and I think that's a good thing to do. Uh, it's not a car repair manual. It's not a cookbook. It's, it's a, all of the Bible is an incredibly rich uh, and, and multifaceted, piece of literature that I believe was inspired by God is therefore inerrant, but the fact that it's inerrant does not mean that we know how to read it. Right. And so what I think is, I, I, I have a, I'm a great believer in what's called the two books theology. Mm-hmm. God gave us scripture, the book of words, and he gave us the natural world, the book of works. Right. And we have to make, both of those are true, and we have to somehow reconcile the truth of mm-hmm. script with the truth of science 
to say the same story. And when they don't, we're getting one or both wrong. Right. That makes sense. Um, so uh, to your point, then, uh, there are some um, in, intelligent design intelligent designists, I don't know how to say that, but uh, intelligent design scientists who aren't young creationists right. who would say, no, the, the Earth is definitely, uh, what, four, four billion years old or something like that, whatever the modern consensus is. And then they would also just, they just highly doubt um, the natural selection of random mutations to be able to do what uh, an evo- uh, someone an evolutionist would claim that it can do. Yeah. Um, I don't know how familiar I, I, you would be with somebody like a Douglas X or a Michael Behe. Who, yeah, I, yeah. And I don't want to misrepresent either one of them, but I think that's kind of what they would say. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I, again, I'm a non-technical scientist, obviously, so I was just kind of wondering if you had an opinion on that or not. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think Behe and Denton and even a few others um, in the ID, in the Discovery Institute, to be specific, uh, are well, they accept microevolution as does AIG and ICR. I mean, everybody seems to accept microevolution, which mm-hmm. is I think, great. The question is whether that can explain species and, and large changes, uh, rapid and dramatic changes in, in the evolutionary record. Yeah, uh, and that's somewhat technical. Uh, I think that, you know, they have raised some good questions. Yeah. I, I communicate with, I, I last summer I, I had a very nice couple of lunches with one of the people from, uh, from uh, uh, Discovery Institute, mm-hmm. Ann Gage. Um, and we were at, a, 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 at an ASA meeting where she uh, spoke, and I, we all, a, a lot of us spoke. And um, I think I think that some of their points need to be addressed, mm-hmm. and some of them have been. Some of them are still waiting. I, there are, there is a a, a broad range of views, both in discovery and in intelligent design, mm-hmm. and also in theistic evolution, which I consider myself one. Okay. So, for example, there are people at BioLogos who are convinced that uh, the origin of life occurred through some form of evolution. I am not. I, I don't I don't believe that. Gotcha. Um, and then there is and then within evolutionary biology itself, nothing to do with any uh, Christian point of view, there has now there has recently been a sort of a revolutionary move to understand uh, how evolution works beyond what's usually called neo-Darwinism, mm-hmm. uh, and that's been very quite successful. And and I think there's, there's some good books to read about that. Uh, one of uh, one of them is called Evolution 2.0 by Perry Marshall, who's, who's a good friend of mine, who talks about that. And and Michael Denton mentions some of these things in his latest book. Uh, which is mistitled <laughs> Evolution Still a Theory in Crisis. Mm. Uh, I don't know where that title came from. He he pretty much almost accepts evolution entirely in that book, although he still raises many questions yeah. about the mechanism. But he does describe some of these new evolutionary theories. It's a mainline, these are mainline science. It's called the extended evolutionary synthesis. Okay. Um, so... 
I, I think that neo-Darwinism is probably going to be replaced, and, and many people say it's already been replaced, by a much broader uh, way of looking at evolutionary mechanisms, which I think are more compatible with Christianity because they have less to do with random blind chance as a major force. If it's, uh, I think what, that is something that bothers a lot of Christians. Right. What what would be the driving force if it weren't? Ran well, um, I it, course, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm I'm sorry. Yeah. What would be the the driving? Well, force? natural selection is the main driving force mm -hmm. for evolution, mm -hmm. and natural selection is not blind or chance. It it it's all intimately related with changes in the environment. Right. And uh, and changes that occur in, in in natural creatures. Now, what natural selection works on are uh, mechanisms of variation. So that I mean, what Darwin started out with was the observation that we're all different. We and every other animal species, there's variations within populations, and you know, we're not all identical clones. So then he reasoned that, well, if everybody's different, maybe some people are more fit, which means they're more likely to survive. Mm -hmm. And that depends on what the environment is doing. So from there, he reasoned to his theory. Mm -hmm. He didn't know anything about genes or, or genetics, but the natural selection idea is simply based on variation. Now, once genes were discovered, the idea was that all of these variations were due to mutations in genes, and that's neo-Darwinism. Okay. Well, that's probably not accurate. And okay. It's a very gene-centric view, and there are many biologists. Uh, Richard Dawkins is probably the, the leading proponent of a very strong gene-centrism in all of biology. He wrote The Selfish Gene, which kind of proposes that. Um, so the newer mechanisms are less gene-centric. One of the proponents of this, I don't believe he's a Christian, uh, or any of these proponents are, but uh, he, uh, his name is Dennis Noble. He's a physiologist in England. And his view is that it's not genes by themselves. It's interactions of genes with components and cells in the environment. And that, and that, whole concept has taken hold and is now becoming much more important in evolutionary biology. Okay. Aside from only any question, uh, questions of, of God. Okay. But you, you would think that that is more theistic friendly or, or something like that? Is that what you're I saying? I think it's more theistic friendly because the, the genetic centrism part is very materialistic. Okay. In other words, what that kind of leads to is you are your genes. Right. It's all deterministic. You you don't have much free will or control. It's all based on your genetic profile. And once we know your genes, we can predict you. And mm -hmm. that's clearly untrue. The data is all against that. I got you. Uh, but they still veer in that direction. Yeah. If you take a view that life was a little more complicated than that, you sort of get away from that determinism. Is this move uh, uh, to, towards a more broad, broader uh, mechanism, is, it, is the move happening because of a lot of um, 
questions that uh, people from the ID side have raised, or where 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 did this kind of come from? Uh, it's actually probably the answer is no because I I believe it started with holes in the in the standard neo-Darwinian theory and. Uh, one of the people who first raised those issues is uh, uh, the, the uh, departed, uh, great departed scientist, Stephen Jay Gould, okay. who was an atheist. Mm -hmm. But he pointed out that uh, he, he brought up issues of what's called punctuated equilibrium. Evolution right. is not smooth. Uh, you he, get nothing for a long time, and then suddenly a big jump. In the fossil record? Yes. Okay. In the fossil record. Okay, exactly. I think I'm familiar. I was just making sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the Cambrian explosion uh, is is was one of the examples he used, uh, and also there was uh, some work done on neutral evolution, which is that a lot of evolution occurs just by neutral drift. It doesn't have anything to do with selection at all, hmm. and that was a big a big you know blow to the standard dogma. And then these things kept happening. There were there were discoveries made that, you know, were not consistent with the the smooth neo-Darwinian genes-only approach. Gotcha. And so people in different fields started proposing different models. Mm -hmm. And finally, they all got together a few years ago at a meeting, and they gave it the name, the Extended Evolutionary Synthesis. And it's it's there's a lot of work going on with it. Um, I don't think uh, most of those people are Christians, but you know, I, I think Christian biologists like myself should look into that area because yeah. I think it's interesting. Very good. All right. Well, uh, we'll uh, uh, switch directions here, kind of. Uh, so, uh, a lot of people out there think that uh, science and faith are at odds. In fact, I just was listening to um, an interview. Uh, on YouTube the other day, and and the and they were and she was talking about how they are at odds, and so when someone says that science and faith or science and Christianity are at odds, um, how would you how do you respond when someone says as a scientist how do you respond to that? Well, that, I, I respond to that as as that being a historical myth. Uh, the whole, I mean, all of science, all the scientists from the 19th century back were Christians, with maybe one or two exceptions. Some of them very, very uh, devout, and we're including Robert Boyle, basically the first chemist, um, James Clerk Maxwell, who basically discovered <laughs> all the laws of electricity and magnetism, and, and uh, Faraday, and Pasteur, and, I mean, it goes on and on. Uh, and then someone in the, uh, uh, there was a book written, I guess Dixon White, I, I'm not sure if I remember the name right. Um, wrote a book called the, the War Between Science and Religion or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that was the first, uh, the first idea that there was any conflict between science and religion. It was not something that people assumed. And then with the dawn of the 20th century, Bertrand Russell and a lot of other atheists, atheism became possible and became a little bit more acceptable. And these atheist philosophers began attacking the idea of faith and saying that it was not scientific. But the, the problem with that argument is, of course, faith is not scientific. Science is no province in anything other than the natural world. And from my own experience, my own father, who was an extreme atheist, as I mentioned, and a chemist, a scientist, 
actually told me early on that science cannot answer all questions. It's not supposed to. You know, you, you, can't, you can't determine anything about love using science. You can't mm -hmm. determine anything about art or humor or music or, you know. Uh, most of the things that we think about in human life are not subject to scientific inquiry. Now, there are people today who are trying desperately to counter that argument and say, yes, uh, everything is answerable by scientific investigation, which is what we call scientism. Mm -hmm. And uh, they get crazy about it. You know, they'll say love. Oh, no, no. Love is simply hormonal, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I see it. I see this mostly, actually, and this is a, a good question to ask you as a biologist uh, and a theistic evolutionist. Um, morals would seem to fall in that category for me, but there seems to be a lot of evolutionary um, explanations for morals. So, what, what do you what do you say to that? Whenever well, I, I've written a lot about that. I have a, I uh -huh. have a blog post a few weeks ago on that, and I mean. Yeah, when people say morals, they mean all kinds of things. They talk about, you know, loving your children is an evolutionary adaptation. Sure it is. I mean, all animals take care of their offspring, but that's because it's an instinct. And it pro that instinct probably developed evolutionarily because it's important for survival. Mm -hmm. I go along with that. But that's not what I mean by morals. What I mean by morals is knowing that there's something called right and there's something called wrong. There's something called good and there's something called evil. And we're the only animal that knows this. Mm -hmm. So it goes beyond... Remember that Adam and Eve... I'm sorry? I'm sorry. So it goes beyond uh, useful. It's actually good, actually. Yeah, I mean, when we're talking about morals, we're not talking about behavior. There's a lot of behavior that comes from evolution. And we know that because a lot of animals do things that we do. <laughs> you yeah. know? Uh, but that's, that doesn't mean they're moral. They're just doing it because that's, they're programmed to do it. Mm -hmm. We are not programmed to decide to give money to the poor. Mm -hmm. We're not programmed to put ourselves at risk to save someone who's in great danger. These, these are not, now, there are explanations that people try to use. Oh, well, you know, it's called kin selection. You help yourself to survive and you help your kin to survive because they have a similar gene. Yeah, but that doesn't explain what we really see in the world, right? I mean, it really doesn't. And the main thing that it does not explain is that when we do something wrong mm -hmm. and, we, and we know it's wrong, and we usually do, we feel guilty or we feel sorry, or we try to make an excuse. Yeah. I don't know any other animals that do that. Yeah. Now, there are people who tell me that their dog often looks guilty. Okay, <laughs> maybe. Uh, dogs are kind of unusual anyway, but uh, what my point is that this understanding of the fact that there's something called good and evil and it's not an accident that that's the story in Genesis. Right. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right? I mean, yeah. they, and then they saw that they were, they became ashamed. Right. And that's when God knew they had. So that's it. That's the answer. Uh, there's, that didn't come from evolution. 
There is no evolutionary advantage to knowing that you're wrong or that you're bad. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. How does that help? I'm sorry? I said, yeah, I was just in oh. agreeing. Yeah, sorry. Um, I, I don't know what an evolutionist would say to that. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, uh, one last question. So, to me, the moral... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that the moral law is is not, you know, be nice to people. The moral law is to know that there's good and evil and to know what is good and what is evil. And and that can be different in different societies. That can mm -hmm. be relative. But you, every society in the world has a moral code. Right. I don't know of any societies that have no moral codes. Exactly. And moral codes is what makes us special. And that that's part of the Imago Day, and that comes from God. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Uh, so uh, one last question before we go to the the bonus segment for our patrons: um, What is the best way to uh, reach someone with the gospel who is adamant adamantly atheistic, um, um, not unlike uh, how you used to think, and adamantly naturalistic? So how do we go about reaching someone like this with the gospel? Uh my my answer to that is what I would tell I don't know if this is a good answer but it worked for me I would say start with the book of Acts yeah and the reason for that is the book of Acts I mean you could start with Luke and then go to the book of Acts because it's basically all together but uh, it reads like history mm -hmm. and you can tell the person, you don't have to believe in the resurrection, you don't have to believe in God, but just read this and tell me, and, and, and think about whether you think this is all made up or it actually must refer to some real events. Even if, even if you don't think the resurrection was real, even if you don't think Jesus Christ actually lived, read the book of Acts and tell me if you think the whole thing is made up, because if you do, that's quite a stretch. <laughs> yeah. uh, at that, the other thing is to start with the book of John, just because it's so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and 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 I think, you know, but that may be hard for some atheists. So it really depends on the atheist. Many of the atheists, I would say, the majority of the atheists that I generally confront are former Christians. So mm -hmm. they've read the gospel. Right. Uh, and maybe. From what I can tell, in most cases, I mean, I had an interview with a, a fairly well-known atheist named Aaron Ra. I don't know if you've heard of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, he has a YouTube channel. He's very active. And he had been a Christian. Uh, he And he had uh, been uh, Matt Dillahunty, another one. I have not spoken with him, but he's another very famous atheist on, on social media. And he had been a, a very devout Christian. And, and both of these men decided at some point, I don't know the process, but decided at some point that they had been lied to, fooled, and were very upset and angry because they were believing a lie. Right. The only, the only good advice I can give is for those who deny scripture or deny God, deny Jesus, deny anything in Christianity because of science. Mm 
If they say it's not scientific, I can argue with them. I have good arguments against that, mm. uh, which are the same arguments that I use on myself. Yeah. So, you know, it's, um, but I don't know if we have time to go into those, but they're, they're all in my book. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, uh, this isn't the last question. I did want to ask you about the book. Um, I had that down to ask you in the bonus segment if you were going to write a book, and then you tweeted out uh, earlier this week that you were um, going to be published. And so I wanted to ask you uh, um, if you want to describe briefly the, uh, the book and what it's going to be about. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, the, the title. Uh, the publisher has just come up with a title, which I like. It's called uh, The Work of His Hands, mm -hmm. A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. So it's, it's, it's a combination of my own story, my own journey, of how I came from uh, a strong atheism to you know, devout Christian faith, which is how I am now. Mm -hmm. And it also has a lot of arguments from science mm -hmm. about why science and Christianity are compatible, and I believe more than that, and mutually supportive. And uh, both of those things are in this book. Very good. Well, uh, look forward to reading it. I'll, you'll want to get a copy of that whenever it comes out. Um, thank you, Cy, uh, for coming on and agreeing to do this. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much, sir. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, guys, thanks for watching. Don't go anywhere just yet. Stick around. Follow the link in the description below to watch five more minutes with Cy Gart, our bonus section. Uh, you can just follow that link over to patreon.com forward slash help me believe and become a supporter of the show. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Hit the subscribe button on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time.